This is Critical Karaoke. I'm novelist and music writer Steve Hayward. I'm Ryan Benigali, professor of musicology. I'm Idris Goodwin, playwright and hip-hop professor. On Critical Karaoke, we take a handful of songs and we talk our way through them. It's history and analysis. Questions and answers. Observations and insights. All inspired by the music that we listen to. As we listen to it. It's like karaoke, but without the singing. This episode on Critical Karaoke, it's Seeing is Believing. Now, when you hear that as being the topic of a radio program, our listeners in the wide world are entitled to ask themselves, what exactly does that mean? Does that make any sense whatsoever? Seeing is believing. What can that mean on a radio program? Should we perhaps have done this outdoors, like in an amphitheater? Should this have been a live show? Or should we have just made a series of YouTube clips? Right, well, the Pepsi Center is booked today, so we can't do it there, so. Thanks a lot, Taylor Swift. Yeah. Most of the time when we think about music, we're thinking about things that we hear. We're thinking about an audio sensation. In this episode of Critical Karaoke, we're going to change it up a little bit. Well, we're going to change it up a lot. We're going to talk about music that you have to see in order to hear it the way it should be heard. That you need to have a visual idea of in order to connect with it in the way that it wants you to connect with it. The challenge here for us is going to be able to describe the visual aspects and elements of music in a, in a format that is really just the audio realm. We're going to talk about Parliament Funkadelic and their motherships. We're going to talk about a band called Snarky Puppy and their video entree into the world of jazz and fusion. And myself, the nonconformist in the group, is going to be talking about not a band and not a song, not even a singer, but an instrument. And that instrument is... The theremin. But first, it's band name pop quiz. Now, this band name pop quiz is really not about band names, um, which seems to be the direction that some of our quizzes have been going lately. Well, it's called band name, pop but it is quiz. still that's, it that's is the still, reason for it. It's still goes called in the of the band names exactly. Yeah, but we don't have band names here necessarily. We have audio examples that I want you to try to identify. What is making the sound? Um, and and as an extension of that, why does this sound something that we really need to see in order to really understand and fully experience the sound and the music that we're hearing? So these aren't songs. This is these are sounds. What is making the sound? Is that, is that the nature well, of the quiz? Some of these are songs. Some of these are not songs. Oh. All of it is music. Flipping it. Whenever right. Ryan does the quiz, it's so... Levels. It's, you feel like it is a quiz. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's the good doctor. Good doctor is in. <laughs> if you want to make it out alive, you better answer correctly. Yeah. Okay, so here's, here's the first example. Okay. So the question here is, what instrument is making this music? And it's a single instrument. Oh, because I was going to say it was a train playing an instrument of some, of some description, but it's, it seems to be not the case. Idris, is that what the, instrument is this? Is that the inside of a piano? It someone is playing the, just the, like the insides of piano? It is not the with... inside of the piano. Absolutely correct. So this is a bowed piano. This is a bowed piano. Stephen, what is a bowed piano? As I understand, a bowed piano created by our friend and colleague at Colorado College, Stephen Scott, is a piano that's been opened up and played with any number of implements 
like uh, guitar picks, but the the inside of the piano is opened up and you bow it rather as you would a violin or something. Right. So the bow piano ensemble has 10 members. They're all crowded around this grand piano, this concert grand piano that's got the lid off of it. They're bowing, they're plucking. In that example, we're hearing some kind of rough scratching sounds. It's made by a, a, a something that's called a rigid bow, which is essentially a popsicle stick with horsehair glued to it. This kind mm. of scratching sound up and down on those individual strings. And then down on the bass, we hear these really low, long, drawn-out drone tones, and it's it's a bow. It's been like fishing line that's been inserted under the individual strings of the piano, and they bow those, and they move them back and forth. Mm. One of the things about seeing the bowed piano ensemble is a, as opposed to hearing the music that, that, that they produce is the experience of time and the way in which our experience of time and music is very tied together. And that really is sort of made very material when you watch the members of the Bode Piano Ensemble. And then I find myself watching them being worried that they will make it around the different sides of the piano in order to play their part. Now, I have no idea, mind you, what they're supposed to be playing. I don't usually know the piece at all. Still, I'm filled with anxiety. And it reminds us that music is the most material of the art forms. It has to take place in time. And for a lot of philosophers, that was what distinguished it. I think the Bode Piano makes that really clear. Right, and you're talking about them having to run around. What happens is you can only play one note at a time when you're bowing these strings. And if a melody has more than three or four notes on it, you've got to put down the bow for one string and run around the piano to grab another one so that you can complete that melodic line uh, by the time it reaches that other note. The principle, however, is not applicable to all instruments. For I, for example, was for a while in the bowed saxophone ensemble, and no noise was made whatsoever. It was a, it was a horrendous artistic failure, though nonetheless ambitious and thought-provoking. Don't give up. People would come to that ensemble and they would think, oh, not, not really. They're not there yet. Not, not, yet. not yeah. quite. It could be something. It, right. it could be I something. can see that they're moving in a direction. I'm not yeah. sure what the direction is. Is it a direction? Maybe. Ten mouths on a, on a uh, ten mouths on one mouthpiece. I mean, that's 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 some tough yeah. <laughs> tough crowding there. All right. Okay. So for the last quiz question, we were talking about a single instrument. This is also a single instrument as well. Uh, take a listen and tell me what instrument is making this music. I'm just going to take a risk. Is someone playing a well? Playing a well. Right, you're hearing the dripping noises yeah. and the echoes. I bet it's I bet it's some form of glasses that you rub the top of and mm. produce a sound. No, that is not correct. But but Idris is on the right direction. Uh, in a, in a, it's in a, definitely in a space down underground where there's a lot of dripping. A bomb shelter. This is not a bomb shelter. It's a naturally occurring space. Cave? It is a cave. Is what? it Nick Cave playing a cave? This is not Nick Cave is, in the cave. Is this Nick Cave? <laughs> is this Nick Cave in the caves? Submarine? Not a submarine. It's a cave. No, it is a natural. Oh, we established a cave. Right. A cave. I, don't, I don't want to burst your bubble. Submarines are man-made. <laughs> <laughs> They're not naturally Allegedly. Allegedly. Right. Allegedly. This is what they want us to yeah, think. Yeah, the, the whole man lobby. You never just... know what you will discover when you're listening to Critical Karaoke. <laughs> Is, Submarines come from... So this is some kind of cave. This is some... You you actually play the natural structure? Is that what you do? What would you find inside of a cave that you might be able to play? Skeletons, bones of, of dead pirates. No. Not in this case. I don't know if it's that kind of cave. You find... Uh, I don't know. 
stalagmites. There are stalagmites. And what is the inverse of a stalagmite? Stalactite. A stalactite, right. The stalactites are the ones that descend from the ceiling. The stalagmites come up from the ground. I would totally have failed this uh, this quiz. If it was a quiz about caves, I also would have... So you can play them? You can play them. Wow. Um, you can play them in certain caves. This is the great stalactite organ. It's found in the Luray Caverns in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. And it's made from tapping individual stalactites, and they each produce a different pitch. The um, organ itself was designed by this guy named Leland Sprinkle, uh, and he spent three years finding individual stalactites and tuning them by taking a grinder and actually shaving them down so they would represent individual pitches. And then what he did was he hooked it up to this organ console, and there's a little pneumatic rubber mallet that you push the key on the organ console, and it hits a different stalactite somewhere in this space. It's a huge space. It's like three and a half acres of cave that this organ occupies. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And actually the sound that it makes, the thing that you hit hit it with, it's called a sprinkle after Leon Sprinkle. Naturally. Which is also my <laughs> porn name. Leland. Leland Sprinkle. <laughs> uh, is that a really, that's really his name, Leland? Leland, Leland. Sprinkle is really his name, yeah. What else was he really going to do? Really? I mean, yeah. yeah. What, if you have a name like Leland Sprinkle, you have to create a cave organ. Yeah, you Well, the thing that, that that intrigues me is it's the great cave organ. Is there like a lesser cave yeah. organ where you can, <laughs> like you can't play Beethoven on it, you can you just play, you know, maybe some Bach and that's it? Right, it's just not quite at the same level. Yeah, oh, everybody, some hilarious. Uh... <laughs> everybody who visits there, the, the, the guys in there playing away, playing the Mozart on the, and, and everybody says, you should see the great cave organ. This one, eh, this, one eh, this is an okay cave, cave organ. organ. Yeah. Decent. <laughs> the uh, other fun fact about this organ is that it's, uh, it's the largest naturally occurring musical instrument in the world, uh, but it's also the only instrument that never needs to be tuned mm. oh. because these stalactites are not growing anymore. They're, they're, there's no more new deposits being made on them, so they're not going to go out of tune like a regular organ or piano or other instrument might. Besides, what are you going to do? Smash smash the stalactite? <laughs> You're out of your stalactite. It wasn't in, it wasn't in tune. Yeah. I, know it's a, I know it's a naturally occurring million-year-old cave. I had to get it. It's the, th the song is in C. I'm sorry. Now, are there, are there recording? Are there like, uh, uh, I mean, what's this body of work like? I mean, who's, who's playing this? Like, how, how is he monetizing this? Is he doing live concerts? Does he have albums? Does he have covers? T-shirts? Christmas albums? All of the above, Idris. All of really? the above. Now, it's, it's a tourist attraction. The, this cave uh, system is a huge tourist attraction in Virginia, and you can go and you can hear the organ played in the cave. Um, right now, I think it's set up so that it just kind of plays automatically, uh, and they only bring it out and have it played live for weddings and special occasions. So you can actually get married in this cave and have the stalactite organ played at your at your reception. All right, so what's next? Okay, so what's next? So here is another instrument. What is this instrument? Wow. Is this a whale? Whale is actually remarkably on the right track. Damn it. Wow, I thought, I had to say, I thought that whale was completely on the wrong track. Uh, is there some, this is some animal. That kind it's related to a living so thing? It's not a living thing, ah. but it's related to whales in a way. Is it a submarine? It is not a submarine, <laughs> but also related to submarines in some kind of odd way. Is it, is it, a, 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 is it a sunken, like, ship? Like, is it like, a, like the Titanic? It has to do with the ocean. You're killing me. 
Is it like a huge sort of one of those air pianos that's on the coast that the air goes through the pianos and they make sounds? Is it that kind of instrument? It is exactly that kind of instrument. Is it really? This is the Croatian sea organ. Wow. I was totally making up that kind of instrument, and then I turned out to be right. It turned out to be true. I'd just like to say that I don't see how that's related to a whale at all. Whales are in the ocean. Nautical. Okay. All right. Submarines are in the ocean. How does it work? work? So this was created by an architect named Nicola Basique in 2005. It's found on the Adriatic Sea uh, in a medieval town of uh, Zadar in Croatia. Mm. And it looks really like a large set of steps, marble steps that descend down from the promenade into the ocean. Um, It's about 230 feet long. There's little narrow slits cut into the top row of the steps that connect to 35 organ pipes. Wow. And so as the ocean rolls in and the waves roll in and they push air into those slats, as you so eloquently described in your mythical air piano, um, it, it, it pushes you. air into the different pipes and it, at different speeds and it creates different tones and, and harmonies. Wow. Yeah. The air patterns create these kind of random but related chords and melodies. Um, there's actually seven different sets of five groupings of of openings. What we're hearing here is the ocean on a relatively calm day, right? If oh, the yeah. surf was up, there was a greater amount of wind coming through, there's a different type sound. So light my fire type of thing. Right. Yeah, really yeah. get going. And it got a DeVita. Yeah. All right, guys, are you up for one more? One more. Let's do it. Okay. Um, this is probably the most out there of the of the three. Of oh, the, this is the one that's out there. Yeah, those yes. other ones. Yeah. Are yeah. Out the, safe. Other, the other ones were like no. uh, the yeah. other the other ones were like completely. Oh, yeah. The whole organ on the seaside thing, and then the the, the caves cave. that you can play like yeah. an organ. Those were in there. This one is out there. This is one okay. that you really have to see to believe. Let's go. Okay, okay. let's take a listen. Again, this is all played on one type of instrument, one single instrument. There's actually four of these instruments being played right now. Is this a like a like a broken like uh, Nintendo? No, that would be something. A Commodore 64. Commodore 64. Is it an Atari? Is it any kind of home gaming system? Is this some kind of like electrical power thing that you're like stepping in front of and waving your hands in front of? This sounds very digital and mechanical, but it's actually very natural and very organic. Something very natural and organic. It's four of the same instrument. And what we've got here is this given instrument, and each of these is hooked up to a distortion pedal. So that's what's causing that that Um. fuzz sound you're getting. But the instrument itself is actually naturally occurring. All right, you have to give us a hint of some kind. I'll give you a hint. Okay. um, The title of this piece is Kraut Rock. (laughs) That's the hint? Is it a cabbage? It is a cabbage. Wow. Wow. This this is the Vienna Vegetable Orchestra. How did you get cabbage from kraut rock? That's what kraut That's is. What they eat. Oh, sauerkraut. Oh, yeah, that. kraut oh, is okay. cabbage. <laughs> Germans love their cabbage. <laughs> Typical. So this is the Vienna Vegetable Orchestra, and they're a very punny ensemble. Their album is called Onion Noise. This song, Kraut Rock, uses cabbages, and it uses four cabbages. They've got little condenser mics attached to the cabbage, and what they do is they play these vegetables like an electric guitar. They are, you know, they're rubbing on them, strumming on them with different pieces of leaves. They're breaking them apart. They're smashing them together. They're hitting them like drums. They're going all Hendrix and moving them up to the amplifier to get the distortion and the feedback. But all of this is a vegetable. Mm. 
So the idea behind all of these quiz questions are things that we hear that we really need to see to believe, to understand, to really understand what's going on with Krautrock. You kind of need to see a video of their performance. And so you can actually see videos of all these on our website, criticalkaraoke.com, if you want to go there and check it out. One of the big questions we're considering this episode on Critical Karaoke is how much do you need to be in the place that music is happening to really understand what's happening. Like we've right. often, oftentimes we're just listening to music and experiencing it in our own private realms, but how much of the experience really relies on that liveness, that live experience, being there to witness the event, to really understand what's happening, what's making that sound, and what's really going on there. Yeah. Right. So, the, so really what we're talking about is what are, what are the limitations of a recording? You know, what does a record leave out, right? And if we think about just historically, you know, there was music and tons of different kinds of genres of music music before there were, you know, uh, devices to record, but even further down the line, devices for people to play music in their own, you know, homes. Um, so the, the question is, is like, what is, what is missing? What is left out? What, you know, so we might still enjoy a recording. We might find the vegetable band interesting. Um, but even as you explain like, okay, this is, this is a stalag tight being played, you know, um, Ultimately, we want to see that we, we, you know, we enjoy, we may, oh, that's an interesting recording. That's an interesting take on this Beethoven. But then when we find out what it is, we're like, I got to get down to Virginia and witness that for myself. Right. Yeah. That um, in some way it's about being there, that it's about not about the music or not only about the music, but about the live quality of the music, about seeing it with our own eyes. There's something added by that. And normally we don't think about music in that way. Absolutely. And I think about, you know, immediately my brain goes to the obvious place, which I'm sure everyone else's does as well, is uh, James Brown. You know, you, you mean know. The, to see him dance? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, James Brown is this amazing dancer. Um, and a, an amazing sort of the way he works with his band almost as this conductor, you know, this medium between the band and the audience. We get a sense of it on the recordings, but until you see recordings of James Brown getting down, uh, then you're really getting the real James Brown uh, experience. And you're really experiencing the music that's coming out of that band because you're watching him control it with his dance moves. Oh, yeah. And even, too, like, if you if you become a super nerd about James Brown, too, he had all of these little um, little gestures and little triggers he would do hmm. uh, when it, when somebody, you know, like how to, how to bring up the horns. He, he, would, he had a way he would talk to the horns and talk to the drummer. And also, too, if somebody missed a, no, missed a note or missed uh, uh, the timing on something, he had another gesture he would do to let them know they were going to get fined. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's all right, of he that. That's would kind of, find the members of the band. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was a bit of a, of a drill sergeant. Um, uh, and so that leads me to, since we're talking about James Brown, we're talking about the funk. Uh, the funk is this, is all about the groove and the excitement and the energy. I mean, it's really for dancing and for losing oneself in a live setting. That leads me to what I want to critical karaoke on this fine episode is uh, Parliament Funkadelic and the Mothership Connection. Good evening. I do not attempt to adjust your radio. There is nothing wrong. We have taken control as to bring you this special show. We will return it to you as soon as you are grooving. Everybody's heard a Parliament Funkadelic song before in some way, shape, or form. Um, there's Get Up for the Downstroke. Flashlight. P Funk, We Want the Funk. You know, all of these songs, most of them have the word funk in the title. Um, but um, 
Parliament Funkadelic is the is basically the brainchild of this guy George Clinton, this musician George Clinton, um, who got his start actually as a songwriter for Motown in the late '60s, um, and and had a group called the Parliaments, which were they were kind of tailoring themselves as like this kind of duopy, you know, har- you know, harmony based, vocal based, Temptations, Four Tops ty- kind of kind of group. Like those groups, they weren't from Detroit originally. They were from New Jersey, and mm. also towards the end of the '60s, you know, as you know, all the political unrest is going on in, in uh, urban communities, the music starts to change a little bit. Um, and and Sly and the Family Stone uh, comes on the scene in like '67, around 1967, and basically changes soul music, pushes soul, soul music away from being just sort of purely vocally based and uh, based around, you know, a lot of the familiar tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're now, the, the Sly and Films don't introduce, you know, the idea of, of more instrumentation and the focus now becomes on the instrumentation um, and doing more sophisticated things with arrangement. But of course, you know, the, the, the party groove is there, but also there's also kind of more of a socio-political undercurrent, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're 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 trying to create this sort of there's this sort of utopic ideology going on around you know let's look past race let's look past religion and all these things that bind us and let's let this music bring us all together um and so you know a lot of artists uh george clinton being one of them um they they're all sort of changed dramatically miles davis as well was another artist who after seeing sly and the family stone completely started shifting you know, the, the way that he wanted to approach music. And so George Clinton uh, was no different and, and sort of created another band called Funkadelic. So now he's got parla- a group called Parliament and a group called P- Funkadelic. Um, Parliament's trying to stay in the sort of, you know, harmony-based, vocal-based, you know, doo-wop tradition. Uh, Funkadelic is much more like rock influence. You know, they're, they're you know, drawing from Hendrix, they're drawing from Sly and the Family Stone. And they're really, um, you know, also, also off the record, uh, they're also, there's a lot more experimentation happening now with psychedelics in the black community, you know. Their cats are taking LSD. And some would argue that this is, or not even argue, but some would theorize that, you know, this this shift in music is is a is a repercussion of, you know, all of the sort of unrest, all of the violence, you know, the assassinated leaders, things like that, that people began to want to escape in a way. Um, and the music and, and through the music, and the music starts to take on a bit of a darker edge, um, and, and, and the, the the urge to speak through the instrument uh, more so. Um, and, 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 and moving away from pop conventions as well, right? So anyway, so so George Clinton uh, creates uh, Funkadelic. They put out uh, a series of albums, but then they put in '75 in 1975 they put out an album called Mothership Connection. Well, all right, start ya, citizens of the universe, recording angels. We have returned to claim the pyramid. Partying on the mothership, I am the mothership connection. The whole conceit behind mothership connection is really taking a page from the book of avant jazz artist Sun Ra, mm. right? Sun Ra 
is the first in uh, what a lot of music writers would call, uh, or not even just music writers, but really there's this word Afrofuturism, this term Afrofuturism, which the standard definition is uh, identified as artistic, scientific, and spiritual practices throughout the African diaspora. So basically anything that is exploring the supernatural, other worlds, um, and weaving that into the art. And so that there are there, uh, Afrofuturist writers, Afrofuturist poets, um, and Afrofuturist musicians. Right, and you're talking about Sun Ra, who's probably best known for his... Basically, you know, there's not the back to Africa movement, but the back to space movement, right? He, right. he you see a film like um, his film Space is the Place, which is, a, you know, kind of has become an Afrofuturist cult classic. It's an extension of the kind of the black exploitation films of the 70s. Um, but the whole purpose and the whole point of that film is Sun Ra is there trying to save the African American community and, and remove them to space where they actually can be free and be not be. Um, not have to live within the kind of confines and oppression of life as it existed yeah. in the United States at that time. Right. Space is the place. Space is the place. Yeah, it's, I mean, the futurism part, it's like, let's look beyond, you know? Yeah. And, and this is also coming out of like 50s, 60s nuclear age. I think for, for black artists, they really took it even a step further where it's like, this could be you know, how do we transcend our reality, you know, and let's use the music as the way to get us there, you know. Uh, and so there's a lot of also allusions to uh, the pyramids and like Egypt. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of this, um, you know, Sun Ra used to come on stage in these kind of like, kind of like dress like King Tut, you know what I mean? Yeah, these, yeah. these elaborate robes. Big headdresses. And headdresses, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, taking a page from that book, you know, George Clinton uh, creates... You know, not only is he, his whole band is coming out in these elaborate costumes, they've all got aliases and different identities. Um, he's he represents himself as Dr. Funkenstein, yeah. and and you know, and they're playing these very long concerts. And the funk to them is not, you know, with James Brown's funk. James Brown's funk is like. You know, James Brown's funk is like everybody get up, everybody cut loose. It's more punk rock. Like, like let's shake, let's shake this out of us, right? Uh, George Clinton's funk is more about an ideology, more about a movement, more like the funk is the key to unlocking something greater, right? So at these long concerts, as as part of this tour that he goes on, the P Funk Earth Tour, uh, at the end of these long concerts, a big mothership, a big spaceship, you know, comes down from the ceiling and it's big. I mean, it's not like some little flying saucer on strings like Ed Wood or something. It's this massive <laughs> structure that comes down from the ceiling, you know, very, very slowly with flashing lights and steam and, and, and smoke and everything. And when it finally lands, out of it emerges George Clinton as Dr. Funkenstein. Uh, Dr. Funkenstein here, the disco fiend with the monster sounds, the cool cool with the bump transplant. And on this, uh, when, you, when you can go online and you can actually watch these concerts and watch these moments and you can hear the crowd just going crazy because they're, they, they're, they're, some would say maybe they're they heard that this happens and it's like this very exciting moment for this like finally we made it we made finally it to they get to see it we finally get to see it but in another aspect uh, 
it is this cathartic it is this cathartic moment like in the same way any you go to any music show especially something that's in the rock idiom you know you get swept up in that energy and so when it finally yeah. comes down there has to be a cathartic moment of like we're all gonna get on there like we're all we're all like you know dr fucking St- yeah we're gonna make it dr Funkenstein's here it's gonna be all good and after we're done funking out we're all gonna get on that mothership I guess my question about this, about Funkadelic and Afrofuturism, is it a moment that has passed? Is it a moment like, is it, or does it still reside in a kind of residual way within some of the more extravagant productions, say in hip hop? Well, I was going to say that that actually this Afrofuturism uh, has continued on and really been is is really going through a resurgence right now, particularly with my generation. Yeah. Uh, because I think we're so te- techno- technologically inclined and uh, more globalized, um, and I think we're also of the belief that that there is, um, you know, all of these issues are so entrenched, and there hasn't been as much radical change as we would have thought there would have been. You know, when we listen to these funkadelic records, there's still a resonance. I mean, they're funky and a ton of fun and brilliant, but uh, some of the issues and, and some of the, the, the conceit of it, the idea of it um, is, still, is still relevant. And so a lot of us have really taken up on it. I think the, the, one of the artists who's, who's most significantly engaged with uh, the funk and the funkadelic is has 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 to be Dr. Dre, yeah. who basically his his album The Chronic uh, from 1993. Some of the hit singles from that album, you know, sampled uh, Parliament Funkadelic, yeah. and he really brought, you know, he he created, you know, so George Clinton and Funkadelic created what they call P Funk, which is yeah. just basically Parliament Funkadelic shortened, um, and Dr. Dre created G Funk. Um, which is the G stands for, you know, gangster, because he's a, you know, gangster rapper. And he's using a lot of, a lot of the same, you know, he's sampling a lot of the bass lines and the hooks. And, you know, a lot of those early videos really draw from even some of the aesthetic, some of the look. But he's then hybrid, he, he then hybridizes, is that a word? Hybridizes uh, it with this more street kind of gangster, uh, South Central LA, Compton mm. aesthetic as well. And so unfortunately, and maybe not unfortunately, but, uh, what what I believe got lost in a way uh, in terms of the reapplication by Dr. Dre is some of the transcendence right. uh, because instead of looking up and out to the cosmos, Dre is really looking around. He's using the music um, to, to, to help ease us into these, you know, this grittier reality. But he's, he's not looking up, he's looking around him. Although they do both share. I mean, if we can understand Funkadelic, the Funkadelic project, the Mothership project is being an effort to, and this goes back to your point of we have not seen since the 1960s, since the 1970s, the kind of progress, the kind of profound change that we that we would like to see, that we, that we would hope for, that we would expect if we're radicals in the 1960s. We see, we see ourselves facing the same kinds of problems, facing the same kinds of violence, facing the same kinds of divisions, same kinds of inequalities as were present in the 1960s that began with the, that, that, that sparked that radicalizing movement. The, what Funkadelic is, is an, is an attempt, a profound attempt, an unusual attempt to imagine the world as a different place, changing the world. If it's true that changing the world begins with being able to imagine it differently. Part of what links Dr. Dre to the Funkadelic enterprise is that impetus towards making the world different. Mm. And... It's not exactly identical, but there's a line to be to be traced. This is Critical Karaoke. Stay with us. 
I'm Steve Hayward. This is Critical Karaoke. And this uh, episode, what we're talking about is musical moments that you have to see in order to believe music that is not just about the music, but about the live experience of it in some way. For my part of the show, what I'd like to critical karaoke is not a song and it's not even a band. It's an instrument. And that instrument is the theremin. Now the, fact is, now, the fact is that the theremin is a much more familiar sound than most of us realize. We hear it in Hitchcock movies. Well, in a lot of those uh, great universal monster movies, you know, uh, of the 50s, you know, you'd hear that that would be the, it would be used to denote that we were something, that we were going into, into something some kind scary. of mad scientist's yeah. lab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. you should yeah. not be going mm-hmm. somewhere. Or that we were going to be going into outer space. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of these very ethereal sounds that's used mostly for effect. There's also a famous moment in Led Zeppelin's The Song Remains the Same, where Jimmy Page plays a theremin. <laughs> Maybe a more recent example comes from the renowned theremin player. I think the term is thereminist uh, in the Scientology movie Going Clear, in which Dorit Chrysler plays the theremin at the moment when Scientology uh, is shown in the movie as really unraveling. In terms of seeing and believing, in terms of the experience of the theremin, as opposed to the sound of the theremin, there is a massive, massive gap. Now I have, and this includes, it should be said, watching theremin videos online. Now you can Google right now any amount of theremin videos and you'll see versions, you even can see Theremin himself, Leon Theremin, the inventor of the theremin, you can see him playing a theremin. And I think when we experience it, either hearing it or other or or watching it online, I think we think, my perception of it anyway, my experience of it, was that there must be something that they're holding on to. That the whole idea of the theremin is that it's the only, it's one of the very, very earliest electronic musical instruments, and it's the only musical instrument that you play without touching it. The most fascinating thing about playing the theremin is that you are actually touching nothing. I think when you hear it, and I think even when you see videos of someone playing the theremin, you believe that there must be something there. There must be the equivalent of the tape on the fretboard that a novice violinist plays. There must be the equivalent of some kind of fingering chart that it cannot simply be a matter of entering into an electrical field and your body conducting electricity and you making a sound. It is exactly that. When you see a theremin being played, it's the absence of seeing anything that makes it hard to believe. And yet, only by seeing it, that's how you can believe it. So my experience having you played the theremin, or at least experimented with playing the theremin, is that it is extremely challenging instrument. It's not just a matter of putting your hands close to the the kind of antennae and, and, and controlling it. It is an extremely small, nuanced 
instrument. Yeah. Um, it takes, you know, it would assume that it would take one years to actually master and be able to play a melody line, a melodic line on this instrument. Um, because if you move too fast or too, too quickly or you move too far, um, you get a sound that you don't want to hear. It's really hard just to hold a note. You put your hand into the theremin, and just to get a steady tone, a single tone, it's very. You don't really realize how much you shake all the time, or how much. I don't want to make it seem as if I'm some kind of, you know, you know. But it was like, you know, that, <laughs> unless that, you had a drink, <laughs> yeah, you haven't had a drink. I you mean, know. I was all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> oh, it must be. Is that time of the day already? <laughs> the experience of crossing into the electrical field where you can make sound is 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 very strange with the theremin because you think that you should be able to see something, but you can't see anything at all. You also feel as if there should be some rules about where the tones are. We have an experience of music where you put your first finger down when playing the saxophone and it's going to be a B. Your second finger is an A, your third finger is a G, and that makes a lot of sense. You have the feeling that a C chord is a C chord and these notes are spaced the way in which these notes are spaced. Theremin tells us a different story, not just about the way in which instruments are played, but a way the way in which sound is organized. There's no eight notes on a theremin. There's there's infinite really subdivisions between the tones and anything is possible. Thinking about all different instruments, you know, you have your woodwinds and you have your string and all that kind of stuff. Where does a theremin live? Does it occupy its own lane or is it? I think broadly speaking, you're talking about an electronic instrument. The theremin would fall into an electronic music category. Um, but there's actually this whole series of instrumental classifications that uh, ethnomusicologists have used for a long time that really break down into it. Is an instrument you know, struck to make noise? Do you use air to make the noise? Um, is it a plucked instrument? Uh, and, and really, the, the theremin isn't any of those. It doesn't fall into these neat uh, instrumental categories. One of the things that maybe connects the theremin to and this is a strange connection to Funkadelic, is the way in which there's a utopian impulse also behind the theremin, where the feeling is, in some kind of way, when theremin shows up with this electronic instrument, that it's going to totally change the way in which music is made, that it's going to, in some ways, democratize music in this radical way. There's, in the theremin, uh, a dream, maybe, of breaking with history, with breaking of what has come before, that in an odd way links these two very, very dissimilar musical projects. And you have to see, in both instances, I think you have to see it to believe it, and in both instances, it didn't result in our seeing the changes that were imagined and that were hoped for by those innovators makes me think a lot about the turntable and it makes me think about, um, you know, the turntable is obviously like you do actually touch that, but it is all about like the, your yeah. hands and the, and the, and it's, you know, to make the right kind of intricate scratching sounds and to do different things. It really is about a nimbleness and, and really about, you know, having some, a great amount of dexterity and control with your wrist and fingers and hands. And, uh, it makes me think about, uh, uh, Herbie Hancock had a song called rocket. There's a moment on the song where Grandmaster DST, who himself said, uh, 
you know, he's he's talking to aliens when he's scratching. That's his way of talking to aliens. Uh, when it, when America, when the world heard him scratch that, there's just one moment in that song where where he has that like. Everybody, everybody was like, what is that noise? Because most people had never seen a turntable like using that way before. And so, yeah, so until you could see it, it was like, what is that alien sound? Like, you know, what is what is going on? And uh, so, yeah, I wonder if if Mr. Terriman, I feel like Mr. Terriman would have gotten down on. I I feel like if he existed today, he'd be the foremost turntablist in the world. This is Critical Karaoke. When we come back after the break, we'll be talking about Snarky Puppy. Stay with us. Critical Karaoke. I'm Ryan Benegali. Now we've been talking kind of around the subject of of liveness, around the subject of seeing performance, and talking kind of generally about instruments and bands that have this sonic visual experience. Um, I want to talk about a band that is very much part of this visual sonic culture, and that's a jazz fusion band named Snarky Puppy. Let's take a listen. So this is a recording of a song called Lingus. It's off of their 2014 album, We Like It Here. Uh, the exact number of musicians in Snarky Puppy varies quite a bit. In this particular performance, there's 14 musicians, and they're playing out of a larger collective of somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 or 40 different musicians. Um, here in this groove at the beginning of Lingus, we're hearing uh, four keyboard players, three guitar players, two trumpet players, two saxophones, two drummers, and one bass player. Um, the bass player is a guy named Michael League, and he's the leader of the group. He formed Snarky Puppy in 2004 in Denton, Texas, and that's where the University of North Texas is. And they've got this outstanding division of jazz down there. Mm. And a lot of the musicians that play in this band come out of that, come out of that, that program. 
So what's made Snarky Puppy so popular are, are their videos. And it's really through social media and through online uh, viewership that they've become a popular ensemble. Part of Snarky Puppy's deal is that they record everything live with no overdubs. And they often invite an audience to come and sit and watch and be part of these recordings as well. Um, everyone wears headphones. They wear these really bright red, top-of-the-line, Audio-Technica professional studio monitor headphones. The musicians, yeah, they're, not, they're not cool guys. No, they, <laughs> they, they, got, they got these incredibly amazing headphones on. And everybody, But all the audience members are listening to the, uh, to the music, the mix, on their headphones. So what they're hearing while this is being recorded is really what it's going to sound like on the finished album. You're not getting a lot of kind of studio noise or background noise. It's just you're getting the mix in your headphones and all the musicians are listening to this mix on their headphones as well. So let me get this straight. Yeah. What happens is they invite people into the studio to watch them record live and like the first thing that happens is here are your headphones. Exactly. Which is it really like it it's, it's the opposite of what we would think about in terms of live music, right? Yeah. We're going to give you the live experience, but really what you're hearing is this processed, mixed version of what's happening around you. Right. No mistakes. That's all I have to say. Okay. With no mistakes. Yeah, what, what does that even mean? Though? No, well, it's, yeah. it reminds me of those, uh, you know, in Chicago, these were big. I'm sure they're big everywhere, but I remember uh, the silent dance parties. Yeah. Where, you know, a big, you know, it's like where they have like a DJ and it's outdoors and everybody comes to dance, but everyone has headphones. So if you're walking down the street, you see all these people dancing in sync, and every, but you don't hear anything. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's this interesting thing where uh, we, we go to a live performance with the, with the expectation of imperfect sound. And so it seems like they're they're like you're gonna get quote unquote perfect sound. Perfect sound by while we're recording this live record. Yeah, the the thing that's be interesting is if you had a if you had some if you took your headphones off, obviously you're gonna hear a different mix. It's gonna be a different sound in the space of the recording than if you keep those on your on your on your ears. I thought you were gonna say if you take off your earphones at a Snarky Puppy recording session, you hear nothing at <laughs> all. You it's hear just complete silence. Complete silence. silence. The guy's playing the drums. He makes no noise, <laughs> and that's what you have to see to believe. But the, the but you can't be talking about just the putting on the headphones. Right. There must be more to your snarky puppy. There's a lot. There's a lot more. So, okay. so one of the things that's so amazing about Snarky Puppy is that they have been releasing these videos that go along with all of their live recordings. So you're not only getting the live recording and the audio from that, but they're pushing out videos of these performances as well. So you can really see the musicians interacting with each other. You can see how they're driving the creation of music because a lot of this is improvisatory music. And so a lot of what ha is happening, you see the musicians interacting and how they're driving, kind of in the same way you see James Brown taking his musicians and driving them around in different ways. We can see that and witness that by watching the videos for Snarky Puppy. One of the other really neat things about watching the videos for Snarky Puppy, you can see how they're making certain noises and how they're making certain tones. And what they're really doing uh, is an ensemble is pushing the boundaries of what sounds are incorporated into the world of jazz. Like what? Well, let's take a listen. Okay. Oh. So, what instrument do you think this is? It's a harmonica? No. That's a bad guess. It's a so, guitar. I bet it's a guitar fed through a kind of complicated pedal that's like a wah pedal. It sounds like a guitar. Uh, the wah pedal is in the right direction, but it is not a guitar. Is it? Is it stringed, though? It is not stringed. Is it a kind of thing that you blow through? It's like a keyboard that you blow through that's fed through like a, a, a pedal? It's blown through, but it's not a keyboard instrument. Is it a kazoo? It's not a kazoo. This up. is an electric flugelhorn. 
Oh. A flugelhorn being you know, kind of a, a, a different a different type of trumpet, right? It's a, yeah. usually a softer, rounder tone. Um, but what we're hearing here is Maz Mahler, who's the ensemble's lead trumpet player, taking a flugelhorn solo, and he's pushing it through a wah-wah pedal. It's through a Dunlap crybaby wah-wah pedal, the same yeah. kind of pedal that Jimi Hendrix used and made famous. So do you guys know why the wah-wah pedal was invented in the first place? Was it to mimic the, the sound of like the muted trumpet, that like wah-wah-wah-wah kind exactly. of thing? Exactly. It's to replicate oh. the sound of the trumpet. And here they're taking that instrument, that device, and flipping it and putting it back on the trumpet and creating what sounds like an electric guitar solo, but it's a flugelhorn. It's making me kind of realize, too, that really what I think what our brains register to be like, oh, that's what guitar sounds like, is actually that pedal. It's actually yeah. not, it's actually, there's really nothing about the guitar in and of itself. It's really that effect, which is kind of mind blowing. All right, so a flugelhorn threaded through a wah pedal. That's crazy. But how crazy can it get? I mean, does it get crazier than that? It does get crazier than because that. Because actually, for me, the flugelhorn wah pedal thing, that doesn't count as crazy. Because I, I came in, I think you recall, with the theremin, which is crazier. Okay, well here, let me let and me, the, let me by the way, the And by you. the way, a huge flying saucer type thing descending from the ceiling during a funk concert, also crazier than a flugelhorn wah pedal thing. Okay, then let me present you with this. This is a recording of something with Snarky Puppy and Layla Hathaway. <laughs> We've got a singer, jazz singer, very accomplished, Layla Hathaway. There, that. What we're hearing is she's doing this, you know, amazing jazz scat oriented solo. And vocalists usually just sing one note. She's singing two notes. Mm. Simultaneously. Simultaneously, at the same time. What? That was that kind of screech, almost like it sounded kind of like a screech or like she was out of breath, but yeah, yeah that was can, Yeah, can you go back and hit that again for us? So that's, just, that's just one person singing. It's one person singing it, and and you wouldn't believe that it's one person singing it unless you saw it happening. So if you watch the video for it, you see her move into this singing two notes at once thing, and the band just, they almost all drop their instruments. They mm. step back and they're like, what was that sound that she just made? Mm. So what she's doing here is she's singing two notes. This is known as multiphonics. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, a reasonable question to say, how can one person sing two notes? How can one person sing two notes? It's a good question, Stephen. It's a reasonable question. Really what you're doing is you're singing a note and then somehow you're creating a space within your body, the cavern of your body and in your mouth, that's creating an overtone. So you're singing the pitch and then you're getting this overtone that kind of occurs as a result, but then controlling that overtone to create a consonant chord. So what we heard in that example with Layla Hathaway is we heard the band react and explode, right? They were so thrilled with what was happening. And we see this very much in play during a really amazing, intricate keyboard solo about halfway through a 10-minute recording called Lingus. 
And about four minutes into the groove, the band drops out completely. And we're left with this bass and drum vamp, this repeated pattern that just kind of goes on and on. And you watch this video, and the musicians are just looking around at each other, waiting for what comes next. And then Corey Henry steps up. He's a jazz pianist. He's a keyboard virtuoso. He's in his mid-20s. And he's, his playing is just really setting everybody on fire right now. Um, he starts off just playing a series of chords on his keyboard. It's like this electric piano sound. Um, he's dressed in a teal t-shirt with a Woodstock festival logo on it, and it's just really unassuming. He's just playing playing music. Um, he's got this distant look in his eyes, and then he starts kind of moving back and forth a little bit, and he reaches up for a second keyboard. He starts playing on this keyboard that's on a rack above this one he's been playing before. So now he's playing on two separate keyboards. And it continues. And he's adjusting the knobs and changing the tones. And he's really trying to just get the sound that he wants out of this instrument. And he keeps playing. Um, the rhythm picks up. The bass and the drum vamp, vamp begins to get a little bit faster. And then he starts altering the pitch with this kind of bending bar. It's like a whammy bar for keyboards to give this sound. So, so far, the camera's been focused on Corey Henry. And we haven't noticed that there's another keyboard player there right next to him with another keyboard rack his name's Sean Martin and he's just sitting there watching uh, Henry play he's being very respectful he's got his headphones on he's nodding along watching what his fellow keyboard player is doing and then um all of a sudden, this solo that Henry's playing becomes a little bit more out there. He's moving in unexpected directions. And what happens is um, we start to see the camera focus more on Sean Martin's reactions to what's going on here. First, Sean Martin makes this face that almost looks like he's sickened by what's going on. Um, he puts his hand in his head and collapses it in his hands, and he's rubbing his forehead and he's nodding back and forth. And we realize watching this, that this disgust is actually just disbelief. He cannot believe what Corey Henry's playing. It's so out there and so precise that he just doesn't know what to do. So Henry catches a glimpse out of this, out of the corner of his eye, and he sees his fellow keyboard player reacting to this, and it makes him go even further. He's on fire now, so he's playing both keyboards at the same time, the same improvised melodic line with both the right hand and the left hand at the same time. He's moving up and down the keys, and the camera's catching all of this. And what happens is um, Sean Martin, just, he just, again, can't believe it. He takes his headphones off and throws them on the ground and just walks away. He's just like, I've, I'm done with this. I can't handle this. And um, that really only fuels the solo even further. So what makes this such a powerful thing to see is that Sean Martin in his own right is an incredible jazz keyboard player. He's been playing with Snarky Puppy since its inception in 2004, and so he really knows what's going on. So those of there that are watching this that may not understand musically or technically exactly what Corey Henry's doing, to watch another renowned piano player react to it gives us a way to understand the music and what's happening. We know that because he's impressed and he's just like, I'm out of here, I cannot handle this, this is too good. That, that tells us, it sends us the message as listeners and as viewers that this is an incredible solo. It's quite striking, and it's not exactly unfamiliar in the sort of sense that if you think about a sitcom, the way in which a laugh track operates in a sitcom, you have a laugh track go on, you don't laugh along with the laugh track. The laugh track laughs instead of you. A similar kind of way in Greek tragedy, when something really awful happens, the chorus mourns it. The chorus talks about how awful it is, and it does it instead of the audience. And one of the things that's interesting to experience that video is watching that guy in the band react so positively to the solo. He's almost a surrogate. Well, he's very much a surrogate for 
the viewer of the video. So it has this, he occupies this kind of choral function in the uh, in the video that's fascinating because it guides, it's like, it's kind of a, like a Beatlemania. Right, he's almost like the narrator yeah. in a sense. If I had just heard that, I would be like, man, that guy's going off, right? Yeah. But to see another musician be like, whoa, I've never seen this before. It's like, oh, this, you know, it's 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 that guy's reaction that's telling us how special this is. And again, you and know? It, yeah, and right, exa exactly. And, yeah. and the emergence of that authenticity is made possible by the liveness of the snarky puppy approach to recording. Uh, it's interesting to, to take this back, the idea of seeing and believing. Really what we're talking about is the liveness of what is going on and the idea of a live performance of having of literally being there in it matters and we're not used to thinking about music in, the, in that way right we tend to think about music having been recorded at some kind of anterior historical moment and preserved more or less accurately by a recording technology that has got nothing to do with the thing that we're hearing right and this is this is a little bit of a different message right it says there is something that happens in the moment when it is happening in the space when it is happening that is irreplaceable and not part of what is captured on a recording technology the idea of what it means to be live in fact has a longer history than we might expect very famously the english playwright john dryden in 1666 writes something that's called an essay on the art of dramatic posy in which what he does he looks back at the Renaissance, at the drama before him, at the age of Shakespeare, Ben Jonson, Christopher Marlowe, and tries to say, who is the greatest playwright? His answer, and it's a surprise to us, is not Shakespeare. His answer is Ben Jonson, because Ben Jonson is the more classically accomplished playwright. Shakespeare, he says, will endure because he is lively, he says. And it's interesting to think what does John Dryden mean in the 17th century when he says, when he invokes live, it, this idea of being lively? And I think what he means in a way is that when Shakespeare's characters come up, come on stage, they're so, they're rendered in such a compelling way that they inhabit the space with us in some kind of transcendent way. And I think in a similar kind of way, we still, however distant we are, we're still in some way connected to that idea of being there. That the there are certain performances which where you have to inhabit the space, where you have to be present for the performance. Right. It's a one-off thing. And if you weren't there, then you did not get to experience that live event in a way. Think about this episode, and I, uh, listeners have to remember, that if you could be in the studio watching us tape an episode of Critical Karaoke, it would blow your mind. <laughs> well, guys, it, uh, I don't know if you can see there uh, to the northeast, but uh, I see the mothership ready to uh, make its landing here in the studio here at the Tim Gill Center. And we all enter it, and it takes us up into the funk. You've got to see it to believe it. Critical Karaoke is recorded at the Tim Gill Center for Public Media in association with Rocky Mountain PBS. And made possible by the generous support of the B. Vradenberg Foundation, the Joseph Henry Edmondson Foundation, and Colorado College. Our producer is Craig Richardson. Our web designer is Savannah Worth. And if you just can't get enough Critical Karaoke, you can sign up for our daily podcasts on iTunes or visit us on the web at criticalkaraoke.com. Until next time, remember, keep your karaoke 
critical. 